Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about how Australia became an autonomous nation in its own right, kind of, by transitioning from a group of six separate colonies into one single political union, the Commonwealth of Australia. This process is known as Federation. The Federation of Australia created the nation that it still is today, the nation I was born in, the nation I live in. Um, obviously, I'm always more than keen to get across Australian history. Uh, which is what we did last week, of course, when we talked about how Australia was first colonised by the British. Last week, we talked about how New South Wales and, and the other colonies were established in Australia, how they how they developed and grew, how their early days were, were tough on the settlers that went over there both voluntarily and involuntarily as convicts. And of course, uh, we also talked about how this colonisation process devastated the Indigenous population of Australia. But we kind of left it at that. And even as I wrapped up the episode last week, I kind of felt like I'd only told part of a story, a very, very important part, of course, but it still felt a bit unfinished. And so this week, we're kind of going to pick up where we left off last week. I wouldn't go so far as to say that this is a sort of, you know, part one, part two situation. Um, and if you've stumbled across, uh, if you've stumbled just across this particular episode, you, you'll definitely be all right with that having listened to last week's episode. A again, not a part one, part two situation, but still, I recommend going back and listening to it. You'll get important context from the episode last week and a great understanding of the the lead up to the lead up to Federation, I guess. So it might be worth having a listen, uh, a listen to. But firstly, before we start, um, we should define some terms or one term, Federation. We should talk about what this actually means in case people aren't familiar with it. A Federation is a political entity that is made up of constituent parts. So regions, provinces, states, whatever you want to call them. Um, and these, these constituent parts generally have a degree of self-governance or autonomy while still being subordinate to an overall centralised government that still runs things on a top level. The most famous uh, example of a federation on Earth currently is probably, of course, the United States of America with its 50 states all acting as, uh, as a single political unit the, unit, the United States under the federal government in Washington. But there are plenty, plenty of other examples. Germany's a federation, Canada, India, Brazil, Russia, Mexico. There are lots of them, including, of course, Australia. Um, and the alternative, the opposite, I guess you could say, to a federation uh, is a unitary state, which has a single central government like you'd find in France, China, Spain, New Zealand. There, there are many more unitary states than federations. Um, anyway, Australia became a federation in 1901. It became its own nation. The reason I say that we, it's not – the reason I said it, it became a nation in its own right sort of is because even today we're not really – a fully independent autonomous nation because we are still part of the Commonwealth of Nations and we still do have the, I was going to say the Queen, the King uh, as our head of state, which obviously is not a situation a lot of Australians appreciate, myself one of them. Um, but it, it, it's, called, it's sort of tricky because politically Australia, even though we do have a King, we are in, in practice politically autonomous the the british uh, the british parliament the british monarchy all the stuff back in westminster and london have very little actual say in what goes on in australia although technically i guess still charles is you know our sovereign whatever else hopefully for not too much longer um but when i say we become an autonomous nation in our own right kind of that's what i mean australia did achieve nationhood in 1901 and since then we have only gotten further and further away from the influence of the british crown but technically speaking we are still 
subordinate to the British crown, something that, again, many of us don't particularly appreciate. Anyway, I'm going to stop going on about that. Um, We are going to talk about the process of federation today. We're going to talk about how we got to where we are. Um, We're going to talk about the path that Australia took towards nationhood, as opposed to being a group of semi-autonomous individual colonies, like we talked about last week. Um, And that's what this episode is all about. We'll get across the why and the how of Australia becoming a nation through this federation process. And hopefully this rounds out the story that we started last week and leaves you with a good understanding of the journey that Australia has taken from colonisation all the way through to federation between 1788 and 1901. Now, the very big episode coming up here, it's going to be a long one. So let's get to it. Kick things off. Here's the story. Story of the Federation of Australia. Let's go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back. I guess we'll go all the way back to 1788, to the 9th of February, the day that uh, the colony of New South Wales was first proclaimed by Governor Arthur Phillip in Sydney Cove, uh, where you still find the city of Sydney to this day. Talked about this last week. Um, but to set the stage for the Federation of Australia, it's it's probably worth reminding ourselves again of some of the stuff that we talked about a week ago, uh, talking about how it was colonised. The colony of New South Wales was established as a penal colony. Convicts were sent over there in the tens of thousands. They were forced to move to Australia, begin a new life there. And it was very hard yakka for these poor convicts. Um, But for some of those who made it through their sentences or were emancipated, the end result wasn't too bad. The British parceled out the land that they'd stolen from Indigenous Australians and they granted it to settlers, both those who had come over involuntarily as convicts or come over of their own accord. Um, uh, And this land was cultivated with agriculture to support the evergreen growing population of the colony of New South Wales. And then after this, this process was repeated elsewhere in Australia. Uh, On the small island to the south of the continent, then it was known as Van Diemen's Land, today we call it Tasmania, Uh, around a large bay on the continent uh, to the north, uh, uh, directly north of Van Diemen's Land, uh, Port Phillip Bay, where the colony, colony of Victoria was established, and that's where Melbourne, its capital, still is today, that's where I'm from. Way out west on the Swan River, a colonial settlement there became Perth, the capital city of the colony of Western Australia, while South Australia, which was a convict-free colony, nearly collapsed before the British government stepped in to save it and a colonial government was set up there in its capital, Adelaide. And finally, the sixth and final colony, Queensland, uh, was the result of convicts being sent up north from Sydney to Moreton Bay, where today you'll find Brisbane, Queensland's capital. Now, these colonies all separated from New South Wales one by one, and by the year 1863, the political map of Australia looked very similar to how it does today. There are six colonies, New South Wales, Tasmania, Victoria, Western Australia, South Australia, and Queensland. And if you go through and have a look at this map from 1863 and compare it with a modern day map of Australia, you'll notice, again, as I say, they're they're very, broadly speaking, they're very similar. Uh, The biggest difference, of course, is that uh, today's Northern Territory back then used to be part of South Australia. Uh, It wasn't its own territory. It was established after Federation in 1911, along with another tiny little territory called the Australian Capital Territory. It's an enclave within New South Wales. It's there you find the National Capital Canberra. But broadly speaking, uh, in terms of political boundaries, Australia was more or less finished by 1863, but we are getting well and truly ahead of ourselves here before we get to Federation, before we even get to 1863 and its largely finished map. We need to take a step back and talk about some of the very important factors that led to these six colonies coming together to form a single nation. And there are seven of these factors that I want to get across. They are they are all linked to one another in some way, some more strongly than other, but we, we are going to work our way through them roughly chronologically, um, although many of these factors influence the road towards federation concurrently. But we're going to talk through them one by one and build a bit of a picture uh, to explain why Australia was formed in the wake of these six colonies 
ultimately deciding to come together and form one single nation that, that encompassed an entire continent. So we can start with some pretty boring cut and dried political progression here. As time went on, the colonists and the settlers who came to Australia began to campaign increasingly strongly for self-government. And this is factor number one, the desire for self-government. Colonial Australia was rather obviously under the rule of the British Empire. London, Westminster had the final say on Australian affairs. And this was something that settlers in Australia worked quite hard to undo as the years progressed. From 1823 onwards, the colonies in Australia were granted more and more autonomy through the delegation of political power to colonial governments. In 1823, London legislated to allow New South Wales to have a legislative council and a Supreme Court of its own which was a curb on the otherwise near-autocratic power of the position of governor of New South Wales. And in the decades that followed, this system of, of, of semi-self-government evolved to include representative government. In 1842, uh, property-owning men in New South Wales could vote for representatives on this council. Uh, property-owning men was about 20% of the men in New South Wales at the time. Not a hugely representative government, but it was a step. And other steps very quickly followed. In 1850, the British government also granted Van Diemen's Land, South Australia, and the nascent colony of Victoria limited self-government as well, with semi-elected legislative councils just like New South Wales. And uh, this grant also abolished property qualifications for white men to vote. So again, we're on our way towards a properly representative democracy. Still a long way to go. I mean, women, for one, still can't vote. Any non-white people in Australia are still going to really struggle to get to the ballot box at this point. But as we'll discuss when we come to our next factor here, as the number of people arriving in Australia surged from the 1850s onwards, these people that arrived, they brought with them their liberal, progressive values, and they pressed for further political reform. Voting rights were expanded, slowly but surely, and universal male suffrage spread throughout most of the colonies. Queensland barred Indigenous Australian men from voting, as well as all women, uh, while Western Australia maintained a property qualification for non-white men. But amongst the four other colonies, uh, universal male franchise uh, was adopted at, at, at various points. Um, as for women, as we touched as we touched upon last week, in, in some colonies they had it much better than others. In South Australia, uh, South Australia notably was uh, one of the first places in the world to offer women the vote, and it was the first to have women run for public office. But it wouldn't be until after Federation that universal female suffrage was introduced to Australia. So even with all of these reforms and progress, there was still a long way to go back then. Anyway. The end result of these political changes and this desire for self-government, all these reforms, the end result of this was to add momentum to the Federation movement, uh, and it also demonstrated the relative malleability of the Australian political system. Australians were accustomed to political change, some of it quite radical, and these ongoing reforms uh, showed that their political systems weren't set in stone. And, of course, this aided those campaigning for even more expansive reform through Federation. Part of Australia's political culture at the time was, as I say, an air of malleability, flexibility, nothing being set in stone. Um, finally, this isn't super related to Federation, but it's important to note all the same. Um, I, I want to mention one aspect of, of Australian political reform that had a massive impact, not just in Australia, not just on Australian democracy, but democracy throughout the entire world the secret ballot. 
For those living in properly representative democracies, you probably take the secret ballot for granted. If you've voted before, you know, you arrive at the polling place, you're given a ballot, you fill it out privately, and you submit it without anyone knowing who you voted for unless you choose to tell them. Before all of this reform we've talked about, however, in countries that employed voting systems like the US, the secret ballot was far from a given. In 19th century democracies, the secret ballot was not a regular feature. You might clip a pre-filled ballot out of a newspaper that a political party had prepared for you. You might vote by assembling in a hall and shouting or raising your hand. You might take a small token or ball and choose a container to put it in. These methods obviously are very open, very public. People can see who you voted for, and as a result, they don't result in fair elections. People may be afraid to vote for their chosen candidate if they think there is if they think there's going to be retribution for doing so. And look, no democracy is perfect, far from it, but this development of the so-called Australian ballot, this is what it was first called before being known today as the secret ballot, it had a big influence on elections worldwide. As these colonial governments adopted the secret ballot and had more legitimate democratic outcomes as a result, even though, of course, you know, women couldn't vote and a bunch of non-white people couldn't vote, this was a an important democratic reform that spread throughout much of the democratic world. Not really linked to federation, as I say. I thought it was interesting. It does show that Australia's political reform was, at least on some axes, very forward-thinking, very far-sighted, and quite significant, even if things like gender discrimination, property qualifications, and -and out-and-out racism make the system seem profoundly unfair and dated, which, of course, it was. Anyway, I mentioned before that there was a huge influx of people from the 1850s onwards, and you might have or you might already actually have a bit of an idea why this is. This brings us to factor number two. It's not a complicated reason as to why these people moved to Australia. It's a very important one. Gold. Gold was discovered in Australia, mainly in Victoria, but also in parts of New South Wales and later in Queensland, and people flocked to Australia to seek their fortune, just as people flocked to California for the same reason. Between when gold was announced to have been discovered in 1851 to when the gold rush finally died down around a decade later, hundreds of thousands of kilograms of gold were extracted from Australia. An absolute fortune. And, of course, hundreds of thousands of people raced to Australia, mainly Victoria, to try to secure some of this fortune for themselves. To give you an idea of just how many people came to Australia in this period, let me put it like this. Melbourne, my home city, was founded in 1837. And by 1851, before gold had been discovered, it had a modest population of around 29,000 people. By 1854, just three years later, 123,000 people lived in Melbourne. Almost 100,000 people had, had moved over and settled in Melbourne, which wasn't even on the goldfields. Melbourne was just the biggest city in Victoria. This is not counting all the people that moved to Ballarat and Bendigo and all the other places where, where gold was found. So by the, by the end of the gold rush, by 1861, there were over half a million people living in Victoria, almost half the, the total population of the entire continent. And as a result of this massive influx of people and the massive amount of wealth that was dug out of the ground, Melbourne became the biggest and most prosperous city in Australia. Believe it or not, it was one of the wealthiest cities, not just in Australia, but in the entire world. And this massive influx of population forever changed how Australia would would operate, would see itself, would progress and develop. And I, I want to focus... I mean, the gold rush had so many different effects on Australian society, but there's one thing I really want to focus on here in particular, how the gold rush brought a political movement known as colonial liberalism. 
The overwhelming majority of those who travelled to Australia seeking their fortune were liberals and radicals. They were those who were fed up with the traditional power politics of Britain, that they'd been oppressed by conservative politics that favoured the wealthy elite, the aristocrats, the landowners. So these people are chartists, they're liberals, they're radicals, they're reformers, they're workers who arrived in Australia en masse, and they demanded political reform that aligned with their values. And this led to full-blown political conflict, even an attempted rebellion, episode 152, the Eureka Rebellion, get across it. But ultimately, the political philosophy brought to Australia by these working-class migrants changed the landscape of Australian politics forever. In Australia, there wasn't an aristocracy. There wasn't a landowning class with centuries of oppressive practices under their belt. There was a landowning class. They were known as squatters. These were the people who had received massive land grants or had just gone out and claimed land from themselves uh, without the permission of the British. And as obviously more and more people came to Australia, as land became more and more valuable, these people ended up being very, very wealthy indeed. But there wasn't the institutionalized, entrenched culture of aristocratic landowners that, that there was in Britain. So these migrants, they came to Australia, they demanded political reform, they ran for and won seats in colonial governments, they enacted broad shifts in policy, and Australia changed forever because there wasn't this wealthy landowning class of political elite to stand in the way of this movement that came from workers. And look, I'm not, again, I'm not saying the country is perfect by any means, certainly not, but in Australia, we do very honestly value things. We, we value ideals like egalitarianism and a fair go for everyone. And a lot of this stems from the colonial liberalism brought by those heading to the gold fields. It's a very different political culture and climate to, to what you'd find, for example, in Britain with centuries of landed aristocracy. In the United States, where the American dream involves the self-made man. In Australia, we have a much more, again, egalitarian approach to, uh, I, I guess, just life in general. And a lot of that was because of the massive influx of working class people that came to Australia and enacted reforms that were in line with the values that they, the progressive values that they had brought across from, from, the, from Britain and from Europe. Workers' rights, workers' protections expanded rapidly, voting rights improved, colonial governments poured resources at the behest of this new class of people into schools and railways. They met the needs of workers and the middle class. Again, there is no aristocratic upper class to pervert the course of government, to stymie progressive reforms. So Australia developed to be liberal and forward-thinking in, in some ways, at least. Not all of them. We'll get to that. Um, hallmarks of a free society, trial by jury, a free press, continued governmental reform. All of these things began to emerge and speed Australia on its way towards federation. And quite aside from the political changes that the gold rush brought with it, thanks to these working class migrants and progressive ideals, it also had two other important impacts. One, unfortunately, was a marked increase in racial tension as people didn't just immigrate from Britain, people came from all over the world, and non-white migrants faced disgraceful treatment at the hands of both white migrants and white settlers who were already there in Australia. And on the goldfields, in particular, it was Chinese migrants who were horribly demonised as they brought over with them an unfamiliar language, an unfamiliar culture, really pushes, pushed to the fringes of society that Chinese were. And, and we'll come back to this. We'll come back to this in a little bit. For now, um, I want to talk about the other 
impact that the gold rush had, because this leads us to our third factor, the economic impact of the gold rush. Gold made scores of people obscenely wealthy almost overnight. And when the gold ran out, this wealth that people had generated was poured into industry and agriculture. And this came at a time, I mean, when the gold ran out, it came at a time, of course, there was a massive labor surplus. All the miners and prospectors who didn't strike it rich, they now needed work as the gold dried up. And so between high levels of of, of liquid capital and plenty of workers, Australia and specifically Victoria became rich and prosperous, which was another factor very important to the process of federation. So let's talk about that, economic prosperity. The economic prosperity that Australia enjoyed after the gold rush was very important indeed when it comes to the path that the six colonies took towards federation. It wasn't just gold and it wasn't just Victoria. Gold greatly catalyzed Australia's economic expansion across all of the six colonies as they farmed both wheat and sheep and brought about a three-decade-long boom across the entire continent. Between 1860 and 1890, the wealth generated by the gold rush and the subsequent growth of agriculture and industry led to increased prosperity for for many, for for the broad majority of those living in Australia. Incomes were high, cities expanded quickly, people enjoyed a very high standard of living in Australia as compared to nations like Britain or the United States. Colonial governments kept taxes low by borrowing money from European financial markets or selling valuable and expansive land parcels, land that obviously wasn't theirs to sell. We talked about that last week, but that's how it went. Between wool and wheat exports, the six colonies enjoyed immense wealth and underwent swift development with the construction of infrastructure like roads and railways and ports and communication services like telegraphs and mail. Australia modernised very quickly indeed. And the best part of this story, the, the part that I'm happiest to talk about here, is unlike a country run by oligarchs that hoard massive amounts of wealth for themselves. I mean, we do obviously have oligarchs in Australia. We do have extremely wealthy people here. We have billionaires, but, and they're just as detestable here as they are anywhere else. But in Australia, there isn't that oligarchical culture that you see in the United States. And during this period of prosperity, I'm very happy to tell you that the average worker didn't lose out as this wealth was put to good use. Australian workers unionised enthusiastically and they enjoyed all the benefits that come with collective action. For instance, construction workers in Melbourne and Sydney were the first in the world to secure the eight-hour workday. And even today, much of the Australian workforce is unionised I'm a proud member of the Queensland Teachers Union, Solidarity Forever, and widespread unionisation helped to keep wages high, keep conditions secure. And and this is something that is carried through to this very day. I'm proud to say that Australia today has the highest minimum wage of any nation in the world anywhere, $21.38 per hour. Now, of course, I don't want to put the rose-coloured glasses on too much here, even though the majority of Australian workers did very well for themselves during this period. They were, they were paid fairly and they, they prospered rightly. This, of course, wasn't the case for everyone. Again, we'll come to this. We'll talk about it in greater detail. But non-white workers had a very tough time of it indeed. Underpaid, overworked, cheap labour from China or the Pacific Islands. This was used by greedy landowners and industrialists seeking to get around the high wages and the, and the worker protections that the, that the unions put in place. And as is so often the case, this boils my blood. They pulled off the oldest trick in the book when it comes to this sort of situation. They conned 
the white workers into blaming the migrant workers they didn't blame the business owners. You see it today. Desperate migrants will come to a country and work for low wages in terrible conditions, doing backbreaking work for a pittance that, that established residents would never accept. And then the migrants get blamed for wages being low, for undercutting honest workers seeking an honest day's pay, when in reality, of course, it's not their fault at all. It's the fault of the people who won't pay an honest day's pay, and you shouldn't fall for their propaganda when they tell you that it's the fault of the migrants, when they could simply do the right thing and offer fair wages to any and every worker, regardless of background. Anyway, this boom, as I say, it lasted three decades. And uh, when things finally began to fall apart a little bit into the 1890s, there was a global economic depression that saw unemployment skyrocket. The union stepped in. They called for strikes. Industrial disputes dominated Australian political theatre, which led to the form of labour-oriented political parties throughout the colonies. The Australian Labor Party can be traced all the way back to 1891. It is the oldest political party in Australia, and today it holds power not just only federally, but also in six of the eight state and territory governments. And this economic disruption of the 1890s wasn't just due to international factors, but also the internal economy of the Australian continent. And this is what ties this economic prosperity, this boom and bust, into the story of Australia's federation. We can move on now and talk about our next factor that led to federation, a direct result of the economic boom and bust cycle in Australia throughout the back half of the 19th century. It's a very exciting factor indeed, because it's time to talk about tariffs and free trade. It's very easy to get confused today when thinking about the six states in Australia. These days, there aren't really all that many differences between, say, a South Australian and someone from New South Wales. You know, sure, we play different codes of footy. We have a go at each other, poke fun at this and that. We, you know, tee off at Queenslanders for being sunburnt bogans or Tasmanians for being being Tasmanians, but but underneath underneath it all, Australia doesn't have particularly strong regional identities. In other nations, the US, again, the best example, regional identities are very important. You ask an American where they're from, and they'll say New York or Texas. They won't say the US. Um, if, if a foreigner asked me where I'm from, I, I wouldn't say Victoria. I'd say Australia. And then if they ask where in Australia, I, I, then I guess I'd say Victoria or Queensland, I guess, these days. But oh, look, you know, I'll always be a Victorian at heart. I love living in Queensland. I love it up here. But, oh, geez, it is just, it's so full of Queenslanders. Ugh. Anyway, this wasn't always the case. It wasn't always the case that Australians could just be safely lumped into one big bag without these regional differences. Uh, before Federation, these six colonies were much more like individual nations that they, than they were parts of a whole. They had their own distinct governments, laws, regulations, priorities, and significantly, tariffs. Just as is the case today with international trade, countries around the world protect their domestic industries with tariffs, essentially import taxes, and that's what colonies did back then. Why? To make sure that local workers aren't undercut by cheaper foreign imports, thereby ensuring local businesses don't go under because of the realities of the global market. Some colonies enacted very high tariffs indeed in order to protect their local industry, while others were more interested in free trade between colonies. And nowhere is this better highlighted than when it comes to Victoria and New South Wales. Victoria and New South Wales have always been rivals, and this dates well back before Federation. 
Victoria had, had, of course, been the focal point for the gold rush. It was the wealthiest and most prosperous colony by quite a margin, and it meant that the Victorian colonial government put stiff tariffs in place to protect the Victorian economy as a stronghold of, of liberal and radical thinking. New South Wales, on the other hand, was far more conservative. Untouched by the gold rush, broadly speaking, it was interested in free trade, heavily influenced by wealthy landowners, this squatter class, and the businessmen of the world rather than unions and workers. So when a train from Sydney to Melbourne arrived at the Murray River, which is the border between New South Wales and Victoria, it would have to stop and all the passengers would be subject to a customs inspection, just like you might be while travelling across an international border today. And that, of course, is in addition to anyone seeking to trade across the borders of the colony. The Victorian government would take its pound of flesh. They would impose tariffs and import taxes on anyone attempting to bring goods in for sale. And this made trade between colonies much more unattractive. Um, And so not to put too fine a point on it, this was just a huge pain in the ass. It was a huge pain in the ass for anyone seeking to trade or travel between colonies because as more and more time went on and as these tariffs, these protectionism, these measures were put in place, it became more like international travel and people couldn't be bothered with it. Many wanted a single market. They wanted the removal of customs barriers. They wanted free movement of people and goods across colonial borders. And this all might sound very boring to you right now, and it, it kind of is, to be honest. But let me tell you this, free trade, tariffs, protectionism, these were arguably the biggest political issues of the day back in the late 19th century, and not just in Australia. You can go back and and look at presidential elections in in the United States and how they were won and lost on the issue of protectionism. Presidents like Grover Cleveland and William McKinley based their entire political identities around tariffs. So the point is this, tariffs between colonies were a massive part of the reason that Australia federated. Plenty of people in Australia wanted to do away with intercolony tariffs, uh, which was something that Federation, of course, would offer. It would mandate the free movement of, of people and goods across colony across colony borders or state borders as they would become. So I hope you can see what I'm doing here. I'm slowly building this case together to, to demonstrate and explain why Australia ended up federating and how all of these factors come together. Tariffs came about because of dis- disparities between economic prosperity between colonies. Uh, And this economic prosperity came about because of the gold rush and the economic development that it brought about. So everything's slightly connected here in different ways. Um, The next factor, slightly less connected here and also very quick, the military. The colonies before Federation were all reliant on Britain for defence. It was as simple as that. They did have their own militias uh, comprised principally of volunteers. They weren't a professional paid standing army for the most part, but... The six colonies, broadly speaking, instead relied on Britain and particularly on the British Royal Navy to deter potential attackers. And this was not a sustainable situation. Should an aggressor choose to invade Australia, the colonies would be hopelessly outmatched without an organised professional defence force of their own. And their biggest ally, the, the I mean, Britain, their, you know, their imperial overlords were on the other side of the world, half a world away. So... The only way that the the continent of Australia could have an organised professional defence force, the only way this could really come about, uh, was through agreement and cooperation between the six colonies. Otherwise, it would just be six different militaries with six different structures and operational approaches and whatever else. And just to give you an idea of how hard it was to get the six colonies to cooperate, how different the six colonies were when it came to standards... They couldn't even agree on a continental railway gauge. That is how far railway tracks should be apart from each other. So trains couldn't cross 
colony borders because they didn't fit on the tracks once they did. So how were they possibly going to coordinate six militaries in defence of the continent? Or would they even work together to defend an, att- to defend an attack on, say, New South Wales? I mean, I wouldn't. I'd, I'd stay at home, bloody arrogant bastard Sydney siders. They think they're the ducks nuts with their stupid harbour bridge and opera house. Bloody put a sock on it, mate. I'll tell you what, I've had enough of it. Anyway, no. The colonies needed a more sustainable solution, a solution that didn't rely on a European power half a world away for their defence, and they needed a way to bring the colonies together in their mutual interest for mutual defence. And this way, of course, was federation, which would enable the six colonies to come together and create one single unified federal defence force, which is what we have today. Our second last factor here is a little less tangible than some of the others, but it is no less important. Um, throughout the the back half of the 19th, 19th century, a new feeling began to develop across Australia, a new sentiment brought about by things like political reform, economic prosperity, continual social development, all these things like that. Australia was finding its own national identity, moving away from its roots as a British penal colony, establishing itself as an increasingly separate and autonomous entity. And I don't just mean politically either, I mean culturally. Australian art and music and literature and poetry, this all emerged. Australian political thinking has changed. The values and the priorities of people living across the six colonies slowly but surely shifted away from the traditional values that had been inherited from Britain. And in particular, the labour movement promoted and highlighted the differences between Australian and British values, a lack of centuries-old class division, the radical liberalism that had taken hold and and driven political progress throughout the colonies. And look, having said this, a shared British heritage united the overwhelming majority of Australian inhabitants, and as the years went on, this heritage didn't really diminish in importance all that much, even as Australian-born people overtook and outnumbered British-born people. The majority of Australians back then still considered themselves British. Some wanted to go further than Federation under the Empire. They wanted to skip straight to becoming a republic, how I wish we'd done that. But these people were a minority. Nonetheless, Nationalist sentiment sentiment did grow to the point that it outweighed any colonial identity that people in Australia may have had. Proponents of federation began to organise themselves more earnestly. They tapped into this nationalist sentiment to drum up support. Political leaders mobilised. They they sought to further the cause of federation with speeches and addresses and advertising and conventions, which we'll come to a bit later on. And broadly speaking, this worked. Federation was pushed to the top of the Australian political agenda. More and more people were drawn into the debate. And while effective arguments were made along the lines that we've already discussed, political lines, economic, social, military lines, there was another line of argument. There was another common, there is, there's a common thread here that runs through all of these other arguments we've talked about. And it neatly ties up why most people in Australia would be better served as a federation of six states rather than in six separate colonies. As we come now to our final factor, the final factor I want to talk about when it comes to the Federation of Australia, I invite you to hazard a guess at what that factor is. The final factor we're going to talk about today, the arguably most important influential factor, the factor that more than any other drove Australia towards federation, it was, as I'm sure many of you have already guessed, Good old-fashioned racism. 
In laying out all of these factors today, I've tried to build the story of how the idea of Australian Federation first began, how it caught on and spread, and how it entered the political mainstream, how it ultimately gained enough public support to succeed. And all of the factors we've already got across today were definitely part of it. But the foundational reason for Australian Federation was, I believe, inherent and pervasive racism across most sections of Australian society. From go to woe, the process of federation involved racist thinking, racist ideals, enacting racist policies to protect a racist society. This is confronting. It is not nice to think about. But unfortunately, it's true. Australia was founded as a racist country, and there's no denying it. I learn about all of this in high school, all of the factors we've already discussed, the economic prosperity, the, the, the tariffs between states, the railway gauges, all of these were trotted out to me as a 16-year-old in high school as I was told how Australia experienced its nationhood. They didn't spend a lot of time talking about the racism. And it goes back so much further before federation. It goes back to colonisation. We talked about the foundational aspect of Australia's racism, the illegal settlement of stolen land taken without permission from Indigenous people. This is the origin story of this nation. Indigenous people didn't get much of a look in throughout the back half of the 19th century either, barred from voting, subject to heavy regulation, barely considered human. But it goes so much further than even that. It goes so much further than Indigenous people. White Australians were up in arms about Chinese migration during the gold rush, whether they were newly arrived migrants themselves or those who had arrived decades previously. White inhabitants of Australia were so strongly opposed to non-white migration that there were literal race riots on the gold fields. While white Australia prospered thanks to its three-decade economic boom, non-white Australia was left in the dust, underpaid, overworked, willfully oppressed by those in power. Non-white migrants, again, particularly the Chinese, were heavily marginalised. Up in Queensland and New South Wales, white Australians engaged in what many considered to be actual factual slavery with the process known as blackbirding. Pacific Islanders were essentially kidnapped, brought to plantations in Australia, and they were forced to work for little or no wages. Many Australians today point-blank refuse to acknowledge this, that Australia has a history of slavery. They ignore it. They overlook it. They downplay it. But it's the truth. Australia has a history of slavery and there is no getting away from it. Whether you like it or not, Australia engaged in the slavery of non-white workers. All the high-minded workers' protections that the unions fought so hard for, they weren't extended to non-white workers. Plantations and farms and cattle stations were filled with unfree labour from the Pacific, from India and China, even Indigenous Australians as well. There are examples of Indigenous Australians going without wages for work into the 1970s. And then, just to top it all off, the issue of low wages was consistently blamed on these poor, abused, oppressed migrant workers or Indigenous Australians. Federation, believe it or not, was seen as a way to protect white Australia from the supposedly insidious influence of foreign labour. Never mind that it was white Australians who brought in the foreign labour in the first place, but Federation was promised as a way to regulate immigration, to prevent non-white people from coming to Australia, to preserve a white Australia in a policy known as the White Australia Policy, which you can hear all about in episode 129, Get Across It. 
Add to that the xenophobia that fueled fears about an invasion of Australia. You'll understand why people considered Australia to have a strong need for a unified professional defence force. It's all linked. From the goldfields to workers' rights to tariffs to the military, there is a racist undertone throughout all of these reasons that Australia federated. Yes, federation would fix problems like customs checks at colonial borders. It would overcome the gross inefficiencies of six autonomous governments all operating under the loose authority of the British Crown. Yes, it would aid Australia's economic and military development. Yes, it would form a new nation of united white Australians all under one flag. But underneath it all, a foundational reason for the establishment of Australia was to perpetuate the racial dominance of white people on the Australian continent. And it shames me to say this. My forebears were the ones who supported and promoted these ideas so strongly. But an objective analysis of the factors that led to Australian Federation simply has to recognise that racism was a key part of Australia's path to nationhood. That's not to say there weren't good things and, and indeed great things about Australia during this period of history. As we've, as we've talked about, workers' rights, a unionised workforce receiving higher wages and guaranteed conditions, diminished class divisions, women's suffrage, the list goes on. But you've got to take the bad with the good. And I, for one, will not ignore the reprehensible, disgraceful aspects of my nation's history. Anyway. Now that we've laid out these reasons for federations, how was it actually achieved? Momentum was really thrown behind the Federalist cause when the then Premier of New South Wales, Sir Henry Parks, often considered the father of federation, began to agitate for federation very strongly from 1889 onwards. There had been rumblings and grumblings, there had been ruminations and and, and vague thoughts about the idea of, of, of the six, six colonies coming together. But it wasn't until around about the 1890s, as I've just said, that things really started to build, build up some steam. Parks worked to get the other premiers of the other colonies on board. He gave speeches, he organised conferences and conventions to turn the idea of federation into a reality. A federation convention was held in 1891, where delegates from each colony, as well as New Zealand, uh, attended to discuss federation and draft a constitution. Both New Zealand and Fiji were offered to join with Australia as it federated, but both dropped out of the process, and today they are their own nations, much like Australia is. Anyway... In 1891, a draft constitution was drawn up, and this constitution was very heavily influenced by the governmental systems in both the United States and in Britain. The Australian political system is sometimes described as being a hybrid, a Washminster system, in that it takes elements from the Westminster system in Britain and the Washington system in the United States. For instance, Australia has an elected bicameral parliament with one house representing the states, just like in the US, uh, but it has an executive branch that is built in to the legislature, unlike the US, which has a separate executive in the presidency. Um, Australia has a high court to interpret and rule on federal legislation, like the US Supreme Court, but it has a governor general as a figurehead, most of the time anyway, uh, representing the current British monarch. The Australian political system as it stands today isn't that different from the draft that was first drawn up in 1891, and to be honest, it's it's pretty good. It's not perfect, but it, it works pretty well and it serves our needs, our, our political needs as a nation pretty well indeed, I would say. Um, but it was not very popular at the time. This draft went back to the colonies and was not well received. Uh, they are in the midst of economic downturn in 1891. Support for federation had waned. And over the next few years, smaller federation conventions were held, but didn't really manage to gain much ground because people weren't that 
people were that focused on it when there was massive unemployment and strikes and industrial action, all this other stuff, sort of taking attention away from the issue of federation. But then... In 1897 and 1898, momentum picked up again, and the 1891 draft was re- it was revisited, it was revised, and ongoing concerns that people had about some of the stuff in the first draft were addressed, notably concerns that were brought to the table by some of the smaller colonies. Some of the smaller colonies were worried about being pushed to the sideline by the larger colonies. Smaller colonies like Tasmania, they happily accepted concessions about, for example, how much funding would be passed from the federal to the state governments. Uh, as well as checks and balances on the powers of big states, such as the makeup of the Senate. The US has a similar setup. California has nearly 40 million inhabitants, but it still only has two senators, the same number as Wyoming, which has just over half a million. That means that one Senate vote in Wyoming is worth 80 Senate votes in California. As unjust as this system may be, it does protect, to a degree, the, the relative importance of each individual state. And it's the same in Australia. Tasmania has 12 senators and half a million people, and New South Wales has 12 senators and, well, not 40 million, but 8 million. You get my point. A a Senate vote in Tasmania is worth a lot more than a Senate vote in New South Wales, just as one in Wyoming is worth more than one in California. And a number of financial issues that had been brought up with the original uh, constitutional draft were, were addressed. One of the biggest issues that the, the, the colonies face is the loss of income from tariffs, from from the protection, protectionist measures that had been put in place to protect their local industries and make sure that they could actually, you know, fund themselves. And so the federal government was set up in a way where money that was taxed from Australians would be handed back to the state government so they could enact their policy platforms and, and, and pursue their policy agendas. We don't have state taxes in Australia. The, the, the states are funded from the, from the federal government. And this was ironed out in a way that, broadly speaking, was accepted by most of the colonies. All six uh, colonial legislatures approved the 1898 constitution. Um, It was put to the public for a vote, for a referendum. Did the public, well, I say the public, it was put to the public in the sense that it was put to a voting population largely consisting of white men, but uh, in any case, it failed. The 1898 referendum failed, uh, which prompted further revision of, uh, of this constitutional draft. But then a second referendum held in 1899 and 1900, it passed, and it passed with flying colours in most colonies. Victoria and Tasmania were overwhelmingly in support. Over 90% of people that voted voted yes. While in South Australia and Western Australia, the polling was at 80 and 70% respectively. New South Wales and, uh, and Queensland were a little less enthusiastic, polling at just over 55% each, but this was more than enough. The new constitution of Australia had been approved by the people that voted for it, which is to say, largely speaking, white men. But it wasn't enough just for the people of Australia to approve it. These colonies were still colonies, and there was one final person they'd forgotten to ask. The Queen. Queen Victoria and the British Parliament had to assent to the creation of Australia as its own nation. We had to go upstairs and ask permission from Mum. But thankfully, there were no objections in Westminster. And so, on the 5th of July in 1900, the Constitution of Australia Act was passed through the British Parliament. The Commonwealth of Australia was proclaimed on the 1st of January 1901. The first elections were held in March and on the 9th of May 1901 in the Royal Exhibition Building in Melbourne where an ancestor of mine played the bugle to open the proceedings and where over a century later I sat my university exams 
the first Australian Parliament was opened. In time, the national capital would be moved to Canberra, be established there, where the Parliament sits even today. And in time, a handful of amendments would be made to the Constitution that was adopted in 1901, just eight in total. And one of these one of these amendments was pretty monumental, let me tell you, just in case there was any doubt left in your mind as to how white Australia regarded Indigenous people. It wasn't until the constitutional referendum and amendment in 1967 that Indigenous Australians were recognised as people who should be included in population counts. Before that, they were considered flora and fauna. It's disgraceful, but with a bit of luck, there will be another constitutional amendment this year in 2023 that, that once again does some work to recognise Indigenous Australians in this country. The current federal government, led by Labor Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, is proposing another constitutional referendum, this time on establishing an institutional Indigenous voice in Parliament. And I know that I can count on Australian listeners to do the right thing and vote yes. In any case, the Federation of Australia came about, interestingly, without war or widespread conflict. It came about through, really, boring conventions and negotiations brought about by the changing times and the unique political landscape of the Australian economies as they developed and grew and changed over time. Thanks to these factors we've talked about, a need for self-government, the enormous societal change brought about by the gold rush, and of course, the economic prosperity that came with that as well. Things like tariffs and free free trade, boring. Uh, the military, a growing sense of nationalism, and of course, good old-fashioned racism. The Commonwealth of Australia was established perhaps not for all the reasons you could hope, but the six colonies that made up Australia had come together to create a new nation in their own right. Well, no, not really. Australia still remained part of the British Empire with the British monarch, and even after Federation, many Australians still considered themselves British, and, and even today, we've still got the king in charge of things, although, as I say, hopefully for not very much longer. And I, I should probably clarify, because I remembered, I, I mentioned that before at the beginning of the episode, I don't mean I'm hoping someone bloody kills the bloke, I'm hoping that we ultimately have a referendum on becoming a republic and finally part ways with the British once and for all. However, it is worth remembering beyond all this, when talking about the Federation of Australia, it is worth remembering an important lesson that I wasn't taught in high school. A key aspect of Federation was to underpin racist sentiment throughout Australia, and you are kidding yourself if you don't agree. And as you can hear about in episode 129, as I said, Federation broadly met the racist goals of those looking to enact and enforce the white Australia policy and keep Australia as a white nation. But now we look to the future, onwards and upwards, and we are doing better these days. There is plenty of work to do. There always is. And as far as I'm concerned, much of that work begins with an acknowledgement of the bitter, unsightly, shameful and reprehensible aspects of our past. But I'll close this episode by reminding you that I think this country is wonderful. I think it is bloody excellent. I love Australia. I love being Australian. I'm very proud of this nation and I think that there is more good in it than bad. But it is still worth remembering that with that good, there is the bad and it's no use burying your head in the sand about it.
But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. I want to tell you it was very, very interesting revisiting this topic after having studied it in high school. Some of the stuff that I remembered, like the railway gorges, and some of the stuff that I never was able to remember because I wasn't taught it. Very interesting to come back over a decade later and revisit them. Oh, geez, over a decade, nearly, nearly two decades. Oh, my goodness, I'm getting old. Anyway. I want to thank you for listening to this episode and for, uh, you know, if you listen to last week's episode as well, I hope it's it's rounded out your understanding of, of some of the history of my nation. Um, and maybe we'll do some more Australian history in the future. We, I mean, not maybe, we definitely will. I love talking about Australian history. I love, warts and all, it is very important that these stories get shared, so I'm happy to do it and I, I hope you've got something out of it. Anyway, on to other stuff. I want to tell you something very exciting. There is new merch in the merch shop. Um, this is something that I've been working on for a little while, and I'm very, very, very pleased with uh, with how it's turned out. So the idea that I had was to make a, 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 merch, a, a series of merchandise that is for, <laughs> essentially, it's for the people whose names were never, are never on the, the racks of key rings in souvenir shops, if that makes sense. I'm one of those people. It's very rare that the name Riley will be on a key ring in a shop or, you know, a, a, a ruler or a mug or a pencil case or whatever, you know, the stuff that you buy for kids. So what I've done is I've gone and found old woodcuts and engravings and sort of old-timey portraits and pictures of famous figures from history, and I've bunged them onto things like laptop covers and tote bags and mugs and magnets, and I mean, you can even get them on a t-shirt if you want, with the names, the first names of these famous political figures underneath them. So... If there is a Napoleon in your life who has never been able to find a keyring at a, at a souvenir shop, if the Hannibal that you know has always gone without at the souvenir shops, if you want to go and buy something for the, look, there are some, there are some more, I guess, common names in there. We've got Alexander and Mary and Susan and Thomas and Theodore and and George and Galileo. Uh, well, if you've got a mate called Galileo, they are going to be absolutely bloody wrapped when you give them a mug with their name on it. They're, I bet they've never received a gift like that before. Now, go and have a look at it. I'm quite proud of this. I think I think it looks really, really good. The T-shirts, uh, I think, look really classy and uh, and I think you'll enjoy wearing them so uh, head over to the merch shop uh, uh, net. head to the, the link there that'll lead you to the Tee Public store and make sure you buy it with that link otherwise I don't get paid so make sure you do that um, and uh, go and have a squeeze at it go and tell the, the Catherine or the Frederick in your life how great they are and uh, and, and, and pick up some pick up some swag for them there if, you, if you've got a friend called Wolfgang who's <laughs> all there's some good stuff in there, man. Go and have a look. Anyway, all the boring other housekeeping stuff. Uh, support the show if you want. Patreon.com slash half history. Thanks so much to the Patreons. Uh, thanks show. Thank you to everyone who's getting in touch with the show, getting so many emails every day, and I absolutely love it. Please keep sending them in. Uh, I'll be looking through a new, ba- new batch of topic suggestions this week to uh, to get across some other stuff, um, and I'm looking forward to even more being added to the pile with your emails coming through. But that's it. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Um, and again, as ever, going to leave you with a question posed on Reddit. This question comes to us from Reddit historian GP Flag Guy One, who asks: Was threatening British convicts with the punishment of being sent to the prison camps in Australia an early historical example of threatening someone with a good time? <laughs> <laughs>